Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello, this is Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Michael Waits in the ATP studio. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing super, Graham. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. We're going to talk about why Asia matters because, well, there's a lot changing. Asia matters increasingly so, but if you were to rewind a little bit, attitudes were a little bit different. And in particular, we want to talk about why Asia matters in the context of startups and the tech startup ecosystem. To help us understand that, Michael, you've been in this uh, space longer than anybody, especially in Asia when it comes to tech startups and the ecosystem. You've seen things change. You've been here since the 90s. We've both here been both been here since the 90s. We talked about it in previous podcasts, but particularly for yourself in the tech startup ecosystem, what's changing? How is, I don't like to use that word, the West, but the rest of the world changing in terms of its attitude towards Asia and the tech startup ecosystem here? So it's a really good question. Let's talk about it in the context of investment and investment theses and just people's perception on what's going on in the region. So if you wind the clock back five years, you take one of the best ideas um, and one of the best executed companies in Southeast Asia called A-Commerce, right? Started by Paul Severkun and his two brothers, Tom and John, um, funded by Arden Capital. I know about this because I was an LP there. And, you know, we went to do a Series A funding for it back in the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, so five, almost, four, almost five years ago. And in Asia alone, so outside of Thailand and outside of Southeast Asia, it was just an interesting conversations that we had, particularly with some of your Japanese investors, which ended up actually being the seed investors for that round. But what we really wanted to do was we thought we could sell this story and the entire Southeast Asia economy story, and I'll tell you why that matters in a second, to investors in the United States. One, because there had been a company like this called GSI, GSI Commerce which had been purchased a few years prior, if I remember correctly, by eBay for about $1.4 billion. GSI, basically, it was originally called Global Sports International, I think, or Interactive. And one of the things that they did was they went to places like the NFL or individual teams and said, look, you need to build a website to sell your goods. You sell caps and shirts and all this memorabilia stuff. Let us build the back end and, the, and, and your front end for you as well. And then we'll give you a revenue split. And back in the day, you know, the sports teams had no idea how to do this. They knew they had to be on the Internet, but they didn't know how to facilitate themselves. So GSI built this big sort of e-commerce facilitation business. Now, they didn't have to build the logistics side of it because in the United States, that was already well developed, whether it was UPS or DHL or FedEx or a multitude of suppliers there on the logistics side. That was easy. But what we realized back in 2012 was that in the e-commerce space in Southeast Asia, the full front to back, the ability to scale that was just not there yet. And that was the genesis of this e-commerce business. We saw, again, we used to talk all the time about this, but we felt like we could see the future. In a way, we still do because there are a whole bunch of things that need to get built still. There are still market gaps. But that was one of the biggest ones. And we said, let's build a front to back e-commerce facilitation or enabler business because that'll give companies like Pomela, which we can talk about later, Lazada, all these other e-commerce companies, the ability to scale 
And you end up being the arms dealer, right? It's like who wins in the gold rush? Is it the people looking for the gold? Well, not all of them will, but the people selling the picks and the shovels generally do mm. win as long as they're selling the right tools. And that was this business that got built. And we just thought this is a no-brainer investment. And even selling it to some of the Japanese investors that are really close and also back then and still today, the largest FDI, so foreign direct investment in Thailand in particular, but in Asia as well, is probably still Japanese. Um, and then we went to the United States. We didn't physically go, but we called the venture capitalists in the U.S., both in California and in New York, and we said, look, here's what we're building. And I wasn't building it, but this is what the guy said, right? Here's what, the, here's what we're building. We're building this e-commerce facilitation company all the way from literally designing a website to doing your SEO and your SEM, all your marketing, warehousing. We'll do warehouse management. We'll do ERP, so <clears throat> enterprise um, I oh got. I forget what ERP stands for now, but ERP systems, management systems, and all the way to last mile delivery, and then build a smart app as well. That too. Anyway, the response that we got, and I think this is the key, was that sounds like a great idea. Say it again, Graham. Nothing. Go on. Yeah. So it says like that. The, the response that we got, sorry, was that's a great idea, but we don't have enough visibility on Asia in general, and we definitely don't have enough visibility on Southeast Asia or Thailand in particular, we're going to pass. Hmm. And it was frustrating to a certain extent because, you know, even guys like, you know, Fred Wilson in, in California and even some of the guys, I mean, sorry, in New York and even some of the guys in California would say, so, you know, we only invest in things within a hundred miles or a hundred kilometers of our office because we can't add value to them unless we can see them every now and then, once a month, once every two weeks, whatever it is. And I remember saying back in the day, and it was only like four or five years ago, that it was quite myopic. And the reality was that back then, Asia just didn't matter. The opportunities in the United States or in the West, as you said earlier, were just too big. There were too many of them. And even though they had a lot of money to spend, they wanted to spend it in their backyard as opposed to sending money across the, across the globe because the other problem was that they felt like they couldn't help the companies in Asia. They couldn't add their value. They couldn't add any perspective to them. So if something went wrong, and something always goes wrong, mm. you know, just the time involved and the space involved in getting somebody here to help out was just logistically too difficult for them, ironically. Anyway. So it wasn't, so, it wasn't necessarily being myopic so much as that they, they felt they couldn't add value to these companies. So in a way, it was a good call because they didn't have the relationships or the infrastructure that those companies would have needed being based out on the west coast of California, for example. For sure. And, and you know, if you look at a company like Coffee Cafe X, excuse me, they actually had the reverse thing happen to them. They built this great machine. And this is about two and a half years ago, maybe three, I can't remember exactly, but they built this great machine that's supposed to sort of replace baristas in a coffee shop where yeah. if you think about the ingredients in coffee, it's water, milk, soy milk, whatever, and some ground coffee. And even if it's beans, you can have a machine, grind the beans, put it in that little thing whose name I don't remember, and then have it make coffee in a way that's completely automated so you can build an app and time it and all this other stuff. It's a great idea. So Cafe X was building this in Hong Kong, again, because the manufacturing base would be in Shenzhen. And it, was, it seemed to them, to these guys, that that was the best place to build this business. And yet when they went to pitch in the United States, the investors said, this is an unbelievable idea. 
but we won't invest in you unless you move to San Francisco. Right. Right. So that was the reverse problem. And the Cafe X business actually because it's not sort of region specific. There's a need to maybe disintermediate that sort of coffee business and barista business everywhere in the world. And frankly, setting it up in San Francisco is no different than setting it up in Hong Kong, um, except for some sort of subtle differences. So that team actually moved to San Francisco mm. and they do get the help of their angel and sort of seed investors on a periodic basis. They get exposure in the United States. They get access to the malls on the West Coast where they put their machines. They can iterate them and they can test the apps and stuff like that. But in reverse, the e-commerce team, there was no way that they could actually move to the United States. And no one had suggested that either. But the reality was that their business was uniquely Asian, definitely Southeast Asian. And all the components of that business, except maybe some software development, but even that is better to have locally here. And to be fair, John, so the one of the founding brothers of the e-commerce business, is like a savant when it comes to building very complex software systems. He's very, very good at this and didn't need the support of people in another country. And he'd actually built one of the biggest real-time bidding networks, if not the first one in Southeast Asia a few years prior to that. And that thing was doing like 3 billion impressions a month. So mm. he knows how to build things at scale. But again, the response that was received was, we don't have enough visibility. So what's changed, I think, over the past four or five years is that and it's moved in kind of waves, right? So two years ago, I believe, maybe a year and a half ago, you saw Lazada, which was a rocket internet business, started struggling a little bit with growth and with funding. I think the people that had funded it up until then just didn't give up, but they just thought, we've poured billions of dollars into this thing. We need to sell it, maybe get an exit for some of our investors at some level. And Alibaba got involved. And Alibaba got involved at two levels, right? One was initially putting 500 million and then putting another 500 million in, but also bringing in management and teaching best practices and helping them um, streamline a whole bunch of their operations. So now you have Japanese people investing in the region. You have Chinese people coming in, investing in the region, companies as well, right, which is good. And then this year um, we have U.S. investor coming in and investing in a business like e-commerce. So it was, and full disclosure, right? You know, I was there at the beginning. I helped people invest in this. I helped run the bridge round into the Series A round, you know, convince the investors in Japan, one of which was in Hong Kong as well, you know, Sumitomo to invest in this. That's public information. It was reported back in the day. But now what's happened is that the U.S. is starting to notice. Right. So how does it manifest itself? So let's talk about that. So something has changed before... The West Coast didn't have enough visibility in Asia. There was a number of reasons and other factors as to why they would have put aside any deal flow in Asia. Either they decided that they couldn't have added any value to it or they just may have only been interested in that 100-mile radius from their offices, as often is the case. I mean, that happens in the US as well. So if somebody's based in Mountain View, they might say to somebody in New York, you've got to move out to the West, right? Otherwise, we're not going to deal with it. So that was going on. Something's changed. Let's talk about that. And then let's also talk about why Asia does matter in the, the grander scheme of things, because this goes back to what we talked about in ATP 440, which is about the future and Asia. And we talked about some of the, the big stories coming out of Asia, which a lot of people outside of Asia don't know about. We talked about the Greater Bay and these things, which may be news to somebody who's not a regular observer of Asian startups or technology like we are. So what has changed first? What has 
been different from that 2012, 2013 conversation that you had with the venture capitalists in America? And now at the end of 2017, where you now have investors going into e-commerce, has there been a sea change? Has it been a, a fundamental change or is it just a blip? Right. So I think it's a, I think it's a subtle change and I don't think it's a sea change yet, but I do think that we will move into that region of sea change very quickly and I'll tell you why. So a few things are different. We used to talk about this when I was at, um, at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley and that was you can have this concept of a market being overbrokered, overbroked, we used to say. What does that mean? That means that instead of having three brokerage companies trying to deal with the biggest institutional investors in any particular market, you now have 12. And that meant that the costs associated with providing brokerage services would go higher because there was staff trading back and forth, but also the margins then would get pushed lower. So even though the commission-paying targets were not increasing commensurate with the number of people that were trying to broker those stocks to the individual, the institutional investors – um, there just wasn't enough money to be made. It was just overbroked. And to a certain extent, I think what happened is that in the venture capital space in the United States, particularly in Silicon Valley, I won't say it's overbroked per se, but in slightly different terminology, there's just a little bit of investment fatigue. I mean, how many more Y Combinator companies can you see? How many more things can, you know, they, they invest in? They're just all, a lot, so many similar companies coming out i'm not saying that innovation is dying there but the ability to find the next facebook the next airbnb the next twitter you know the next snapchat is just getting harder and harder right and also you're seeing a lot of companies stay private in the u.s longer so not going into an ipo which is one of the which is one of the easiest ways for venture capitalists to monetize in the united states as well and because they started to see a whole bunch of the same types of things in the U.S. A lot of little funds started sprouting out that said, sprouting up that said, you know, we don't want to just be local. We want to be international now. Hmm. And they started looking a little bit further away from their offices than they had been doing in 2012 and 2013. And the natural place to do that, you know, China was a story that they'd heard already. India came, I won't say came and went, but India is a very domestic market as well. And the investment thesis around India is well known. But even – and some of the people that we know that live in India, that are Indian, that we interviewed said the investment climate there is so bubbly, right? And there's been so much participation that maybe that needs to cool off a little bit as well. And whereas most people don't have enough information yet about Africa, which I do think is going to be a gigantic opportunity, they naturally came to Southeast Asia. Mm. And I think the investors in the United States started started seeing – companies like Alibaba getting involved, the Japanese companies already being involved. And they said, we need to look and we need to find the best opportunities there. And as it turns out, you saw a company like KKR, which was originally a private equity company and one of the largest investment companies in the world, actually very famous, right? Kohlberg, Kravis and Roberts based out of New York. They, I think they built their second Asian fund, right? So they decided in 2015 to invest in media, entertainment, and consumer technology in Asia. So they were one of the first people to do it. And they apparently committed $300 million, which in this region is a ton of money, um, from their second fund, KKR Asia Fund 2, 
right? And then they raise another $9.3 billion for its third Asian fund. That's a sea change, as you said, right? So it's a, just a gigantic difference mm. of what they did this year versus what they did in 2015, okay? So it's like 30 times bigger. Mm. That's a lot of money that needs to get deployed. And that's right. a big change. But again, sorry, go ahead. Well, it's blazing a trail for everybody else now. It takes those initial pioneers to take a bit of a risk, especially when it comes to new geographic markets. That then opens the door. And we've seen this go the other way, haven't we? With, you know, for example, if you go way back to the 80s with the first exporters, the Japanese electronics manufacturers, it took one to open the market for everybody else then to follow in that sort of in their wake. And we're kind of seeing this reversed with the investment side of the community now coming from the US into Asia. And let's talk about what it is they're coming for. Cause there seems to be like three factors here and it would be good to get your opinion on these, Michael. That's what really is driving them and identify sort of three areas, which people talk about when we talk about why Asia matters, there's, the demographics, which, you know, a lot of it's self-explanatory. It's demographics in billions and there's youth populations and so on. The second side is this sort of can-do attitude towards business, which, you know, we talked about Singapore Airport last week. Right, last week, yeah. You know, about that whole attitude towards just building infrastructure and so on. And the third side, you've got this, um, you know, I think the nearest analogy is like, talking about PayPal, the PayPal mafia, that, you know, you have this legacy and you brought it up in a previous ATP, talking about the angel community in Asia, right? It takes a generation to to mature and go through and then invest back into the startup community. And right. we, we, see, we saw that with PayPal, with those big exits and how they went on to create, you know, unicorns and so on. We're starting to see that sort of develop as well in Asia with these Indian and particularly Chinese unicorns that now have these sort of second generation coming through so you've got those three factors sure. demographics the can-do attitude and that sort of generator of wealth which comes from whether it's a jd or an alibaba or a tencent or whatever i mean looking here tencent tencent has invested in 19 unicorns right what's driving the market why are the americans coming to asia now well, so I want to talk a little bit about demographics in a second, but I also want to talk about this attitude thing that you mentioned because I think it's important and it's slightly more subtle. So I was interviewing and talking to somebody earlier today about just that, about the angel investment environment, the angel investment community and ecosystem in Asia and in Southeast Asia. And that person had just returned from a trip from from San Francisco and one of the things that, well, and from the United States in general, right? And one of the things that they said was that it's always interesting when you go to the U.S., it feels um, like there's a, you know, the, the paradigm there has changed a little bit. That attitude of hopefulness that, like, we can build anything and we can build it as big as we want seems to have changed a bit. I haven't been there in a while. So that's secondhand information to me. But when you come back to Southeast Asia, you feel this, like, overwhelming energy, Right of like you said, can do, and it's all positive. And if you think about, let's talk about in historic context, right? I live in Thailand, and I like to say there's no better time to be like a 20 year old Thai, because the entire world is your oyster. You could build whatever you want, and the resources are there to do it because the you know the cost of building things now has become much smaller, and the openness of the entire economy is there. Right? Think about Vietnam in 1975, and after that, besides coming out of a terrible war. And it wasn't that long ago, 
you know, they've been they were run by a very strictly communist um, government, and yet now the economy itself is growing super rapidly. There are startups there. There's an ecosystem there. There's digital there. All the banking stuff is changing there. And again, the Philippines is the same way. There's no better time to be from the Philippines because, you know, the legacy of the Marcoses is gone from the 90s. And now this generation of kids is just so hopeful and just so happy to have an opportunity that they'll do kind of anything to get ahead in a way that's really positive. And now the technology and the cost and all the other things are uniform across um, even in Myanmar, which has seen a little bit of a drop back recently only because of some political issues. But again, you can't stop the wave of youth that's there. We talked to, you know, Rita Nguyen a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago now, again, talking about the environment there. Just that mm. subtle attitude change is so powerful. But I also want to talk about population demographics, if you don't mind, right? So if you look at a country like Malaysia, I just want to run through this really quickly, right? Malaysia has about 30 million people. The median age in Malaysia is 26 years old. I just want you to think about that for a second, okay? Thailand, 70 million people. It's like the oldest country in the region. The median age is 35 years old, mm. okay? This is all according to Wolfram Alpha. And I wanted to point this out. The population in Vietnam, 91 million people, and the average age is 28 and a half I want, to, I want to talk about Indonesia for a second because it's the biggest population, over 250 million people, 26.9. And then the Philippines. The Philippines has almost 100 million people in it. And the median age is 22.3 years old. You're just talking about one of the youngest populations in the world as well on average. Right? And if you add up all those people, you get somewhere north of 600 million people. Right. right. It depends which other countries you include, but you know, put, put it into context, right? I mean, let's compare it to the United States. I'm just looking at the data myself. Median age of the United States, 36.6. In the whole country, though, that's 330-something right. million people, right? I'm guessing. Right, right. Exactly. So 36.6. And that's, I mean, United Kingdom, just 39, 39.3. Right. France, 39.5. So you have those... Well, I mean, these are old populations. I mean, that's the average, as you're right. So you compare that to a, a population where the average is in the 20s. I mean, it's just that, so that's young. tangible. And the you just go out so there different. and see it, right? Yeah. Right. And the zeitgeist, the attitude about, is different. That's the key. So different. And if you think about the idea now that you, you're not just young, but now you have the opportunity and the possibility right. to do things that your parents couldn't have conceived of doing because of whatever the political environment or economic environment was in their country. I mean, if you think about, you know, 40 years ago or even 25 years ago, being a 25-year-old in the Philippines, it was just much different than it is today. The same thing for Vietnam and even for Malaysia. And remember, we always talk about this. Malaysia is on a per capita basis the wealthiest country outside of Singapore in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. probably by a factor of two to Thailand. And... Thailand is probably double as rich as Indonesia on a per capita basis, but Indonesia has four times or three and a half times as many people. The point is that there's a massive opportunity here. And because of the sort of structural, um, not problems, but because of the structural issues in the United States and because it's the development stage in both the investment cycle, but also in the company building cycle there, the opportunities are potentially getting smaller and smaller. And even people that are like running events and doing things that are associated with investment or considering now moving those investments anywhere from Australia 
all the way west to India, but all in Asia. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that is an important change. That's just the beginning. But, you know, who was it? Hemingway said, you know, how did you go bankrupt? He said it was really slow at first and then it was instantaneous, right? And yeah. I think that the same thing is going to happen in the investment cycle and the investment scene in Southeast Asia. Now, it's going to be sort of a slow dribble and then it's just going to explode. It's going to seem like it happened overnight. Well, let's so go those back. Are the things yeah, that I mean, changed. I want to throw some more data out there. These these two points about the, the demographics and the, the can-do attitude are, are so powerful that what you're talking about is that slow dribble and then the, the that floodgate opens because now it, it's gone from being a pioneer to missing out, isn't it? Now, now we're at the pioneer stage where people who have a bit more of a uh, an aggressive risk reward profile are, are tapping into new markets and they're getting rewards that then filters back. And then sort of, you know, the less pioneering people follow. And then you get to a stage where unless you're in the market, you're missing out. Right. So we're kind of at that first stage. One of the things we talked about as to why somebody might choose Asia was the can do attitude. And I want to throw this data at you, Michael, and we've mentioned this before, but we didn't really go in depth in this. And I think this is going to be a surprise to people because I know we talked about Singapore airport. I think, yeah, that's great. It's just an airport. But think about the whole region's attitude towards doing business. And there is a ranking called the doing business rankings by the World Bank. Right. And they, they rank countries across many different variables and factors. And I think the findings are surprising. And, Without looking at this, because I know I've got you on the spot now. I'm not looking at it. So I don't know. Oh, okay. I'm fine. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. All right. So ease of doing business rank, which is like the global rank for all factors, which include, for example, starting a business, the basic stuff like getting electricity to your office and so on. So all those factors thrown in. How easy is it to start a business? Where do you think United States is, given this is the bastion of business and the free market in the world, in this rankings, ranked out of just 190 countries? I mean, I would say seventh is the is the number that I I don't think it's first for sure, but I would say seventh would be my guess. Right. Well, very good. It's sixth. So there you go. That's a good guess. So. And well, I don't so, know. I didn't look, but I would just. Well, yeah, it's sixth and seventh is United Kingdom, so it's right there. Who do you think is above them? I mean, now you're really putting me on the spot. I, I think Singapore, at some level, has to be above them. Ease of doing business, for sure. Yep. Um, I and I would even guess that China was would be above them, right? I mean, we. I don't. I don't have an edge in China, but I think that it's probably not as difficult as most people think. And then probably somebody in Scandinavia, someplace in Scandinavia, like Sweden or Norway, would uh, Switzerland. I don't know. Would probably be ahead of them. I'm, I'm guessing. And God forbid Japan was in the top oh, five. Well, that, I wouldn't yeah, think no, so. no, that, that's a different story entirely. Well, you, you, you've, you've got it. You've nailed it. So uh, Singapore was number two. Denmark, so your Scandinavian uh, feature is number three. Um, so th- the rundown is this. New Zealand one, Singapore two, Denmark three, Korea four. That's South Korea for everybody. And then Hong Kong <laughs> number five. So... I just find that fascinating. So you've got Singapore and Hong Kong, which feature a lot in our discussions as number two and number five. New Zealand, which is kind of in the Asian Pacific rim, but we won't count it as Asia, but it's sort of there. It's a small enough state to be able to make those kind of changes. 
it's indicative, isn't it? And people look at that and think, well, you know, okay, fine. It's easy to do business. But, you know, if you were a startup and you could choose, and increasingly startups can choose now, you know, why would you choose to set up in a place which is difficult to do business in when you could go to a place like Singapore or Hong Kong? And here's the rub as well. When it comes to paying taxes, this is where it gets interesting. So in, ease, in terms of ease of doing business based on paying taxes, so obviously the ones at the top is the easiest. It's not the least taxes, but how easy it is to file that return and do all those kind of things. Right. So Hong Kong's number three, Singapore's number seven, and you've got to go right down the list. And we'll use the United States as a benchmark. And I'm scrolling down. The United States is 36. You know, and that what a nightmare. I mean, it's just a nightmare. But yeah, shouldn't be on the resume of uh, you know what is the leading <laughs> market of the the free world in terms of enterprise. Right? It shouldn't be down at number 36. But it just goes to show, if you're a startup, these are things that, you know, get you stuck in the weeds in your early cycle, right? So if you could live in a place and do business in a place where you could simply file a form online and you're done, why not? Yeah, you would definitely do that. So I think it's interesting because a lot of people assume that the United States is number one and it is in some factors, but in many factors it isn't, right? Yeah, and look, we see surveys all the time that says Silicon Valley is the best place to start, blah, 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 right? But I think in some way it's going to end up being like the fall of Rome. It's just going to happen and no one internally is going to notice until, you know, all the castles start to burn. And look, there's an article in the New York Times today that says the Silicon Valley gets, in quotes, crazy. Hmm. The Midwest of the United States beckons tech investors. I know Steve Case was doing some stuff with this as well. But the bottom line is – and the Midwest is neat and everything – Right. And maybe it's just the New York Times trying to get readership, but there's nothing else in the Midwest. Right. So the infrastructure is going to stink. There aren't a lot of clients or customers out there. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for those people, except for really Chicago. But like, have you ever been to Wisconsin or Nebraska or any of these other countries in the Midwest, you know, Missouri or whatever it is, Kansas? It, I'm not saying they're bad people, but there just aren't a lot of them. Right. And if you look at like California probably has the sixth largest GDP of any country in the world. It's just so it's insane what's going on there. But the bottom line is that if it's not easy to do and if you look at like the startup classes of people that are there, you know, there's a decent – and I was talking to somebody else about this today as well. There's a decent Asian cont- Asian contingent of business runners and business founders in the United States. And frankly, if it gets harder and harder for them to be there mm. – but they do have a dream of changing the world and they can go to Singapore and they can pay 12% taxes and they have access to the rest of the region and it's the fastest growing region in the world and all the economies are doing well and they want to solve big problems because that's what entrepreneurs are meant to do. They're no longer like you know, coming into an emerging market. It's no longer Frontierville. Um, why wouldn't you, if you were Indian, say, wait a second – there are only 330 million people in the United States, but there are a billion people in India and a lot of problems that need to get solved. Why wouldn't I do that? Mm. To what extent do the uh, these large investment funds run by people like Tencent? And I know you mentioned Japan as well. I'm not forgetting Japan as a you know in terms of their FDI. In terms of we mentioned, for example, like the SoftBank fund. Investing into yeah. Yeah, WeWork, fund, yeah. yeah. So investing into WeWork as an example. To what extent do they have an impact on the, that sort of flight 
if I can use that word, from the US or from the West to Asia, will they lure people in? Do you think they're going to have as much as an impact on investors coming in or startups relocating to the area? How do you see their sort of role in this redefinition of why Asia matters? Well, I think money plays a huge part, right? And if you look at some of your biggest investors, whether it is SoftBank or Tencent or even the Koreans, what was that thing that you and I were talking about? So Tech in Asia just raised a $6.6 million oh, yeah. round to, you know, to expand their event and their media business. And yet, who was the investor in that business, right? That was a Korean company. So you're getting, and, and not a Korean company that you would um, expect, Hanwha, I believe, if, if I remember the name correctly. The point is that the money that's congregating here now is going to change the metrics for hiring, you and I have spoken about this before, mm -hmm. right? If I can hire a high-quality um, developer in the region, why would I have to go to Silicon Valley to do it, right? Um, and if I can hire, you know, if I can build a logistics business, if I can do all stuff, all that money's coming into the region. It's going to make all of the things that are finance-related so much easier. And it's definitely going to be one of the reasons why Asia matters. But also, also because there's been an arbitrage in Asia for the longest time and wherever there's an arbitrage money's going to follow it and that arbitrage will close. Mm -hmm. So one of the arbitrages is in development community, right? So as the US and the western world starts to figure out that there are super high quality developers, designers, business people, logistics providers in this region, they're just going to continue to see that it's a massive opportunity. Think about this. KKR, right, which led a $65 million round into e-commerce, um, is now going to tell people, right, because the, one, of the, one of the ways that they can increase their valuation is going, you should go to Southeast Asia as well. We just invested in this company where, you know, two, one of the biggest offices in Thailand, the other one's in Indonesia, and they'll just think, well, that's pretty frontier. And they'll say, well, you should go talk to Paul, you should talk to Peter, you should talk to, you know, John who runs sales or care, all these people that are there. And they'll come out and just be blown away by the Barrage Tower, by M Courtier, where that business is based. They'll ride the BTS. They'll figure out all these things. And then they'll see how big the market is. And they'll go home and say, oh, my God, I think we might be missing something. You, oh. I think you're going to see a big reallocation of capital. And like you said, it just takes one team or two or three teams to come out and do that. And we've already seen it. And it starts to drift further west. And then it's almost like game over for everybody because – you're going to start to see more and more investment money flow into here, right? Look, there's the whole Gartner hype cycle as well, right? Which I don't, I don't even think we've started to go through in Southeast Asia from an investment yeah. standpoint. Things are going to get ramped up. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. One thing you mentioned in a previous episode, uh, Michael, is that, you know, you talked about the, the end game for a lot of, uh, founders, especially for the investors is to IPO that company. Um, there just wasn't the established markets or liquidity in Asia at the time. So if somebody got to the stage where they were considering a, a public offering, they would have to go to the US. And that's sort of been the, the gravy train for the last generation, that they would have to go to the US and float on the US. And effectively, th those, uh, you know, those exchange would compete for that business and they could provide so much mm -hmm. of a better deal than what was in Asia. Do you think that's going to change? Are we still in a position where Look, you, you can now develop a startup in Asia quite effectively, but, you know, the moment of truth where you want to IPO, you're going to have to go to the US still. Where are we with that now? Yeah, I mean, I think on an infinite timescale, so on a longer time scale, right, that's definitely going to change. And I think you're going to see a lot of that sort of change over time. And 
you know, you don't know, but the Shanghai Stock Exchange or the Shenzhen Stock Exchange could be one of the biggest, you know, markets in the world in 15 or 20 years. But I think the reality is that that part of the business hasn't changed much yet. I do think there's going to be some disintermediation occur there, and we can talk about how, you know, blockchain and distributed ledger technology is going to change that over time. Um, and there was a fintech festival actually in Singapore last week, which again was very significant, the biggest ever, a lot of great participants. Um, but I think from an IPO perspective, the the most liquidity in the world for a tech stock is going to be on the Nasdaq or on the New York Stock Exchange. That's just not going to change over the next five or ten years. Just not going to change. Now you may have government and regulatory reasons in the U.S. to change drastically that you know that I don't understand why people would do, but it's always a possibility. You know, you're seeing right now there's a proposed merger between AT&T and Time Warner. So what's going to stop this from happening? In other words, and I, I believe, and I, again, I don't want to talk about politics, but but I believe in the previous administration and the previous management of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission in the U.S., that a deal like this would have gone through. I think it's an $85 billion deal. But watch this. One of the components of Time Warner is a little you know company called CNN. Hmm. And to the extent that there are certain people in the government that don't like CNN that much, they don't, you know, they'd love to see the ruination of that company. So there may be some problems with that type of merger, but that merger actually brings together some of the things that are already being discussed. If you look at, you know, the article, it talks about what's going on here. You know, there's media, there's e-commerce, there's demand side, right? And this is one of the things that, that Emerald Media talks about when they decide to make a, an investment in Southeast Asia is that, you know, demand generation, data analytics, and consumer media entertainment all come together in one place. And, you know, the investment in e-commerce as a business and e-commerce as, a, as, a, as an entity fits into that strategy. Um, I think you may see some of that economic activity and the economic investment move out here along with some of the IPOs and the listings if that becomes the way that, that people want to exit. To be fair, though, I think what's more likely to happen well, that will happen over time, is that you'll see more and more trade sales where bigger companies mm. just buy these companies and they never get listed. Mm. That, that's kind of what I think is going to happen anyway. Right. And I've been saying that for a while. In the context of ICOs then, because you've mentioned that, and you're right at the coalface with your crypto podcast, which people can go and check out, asiatechpodcast.com slash crypto, where you get to talk to cryptocurrency people from all different stripes from different parts of the world there's, there's a big asia focus how does that bear up then with that question of why asia matters does is asia just another market for crypto or is there something different here in asia that is not happening to the same degree in other parts of the world okay so that's a really good point so why does asia matter in the context i won't say so much of icos Although I do think there's some of that. But I think you're talking about a regulatory environment, which is just much more rational. Mm -hmm. right? I think you're seeing a lot of – and part of the reason is that there aren't as many legacy and embedded interests here and protected interests as well, you, there you are just mentioned in, it, in right? other countries. Yeah, but the, the CNN deal, right? I mean that's just a classic yeah, the, example, right? It, it is. And that's negative I think for markets. Remember, one thing that markets don't like is um, is unknowns, Right. They just – they want to deal with things that they understand that they know. They want to deal with a little bit of rationality. And if they can't make an investment decision that's more than you know 15 minutes out because they're not sure what the, an irrational regulator or an irrational um, person is going to do, then they can't make an investment decision. And yet last week 
in Singapore, sponsored by by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. I've also heavily attended by them. You had a massive event, the Singapore FinTech Festival. Um, and who was that woman from the IMF that was there? Christine Lagarde? Do yeah. I get her name right? I can't remember. Yeah. But again, so people from all over the world were coming in to try to understand how um, governments, sovereign wealth funds, and all these other entities in Asia were trying to take advantage of new technology. So instead of saying like Jamie Dimon, who is just an intermediary, really. I mean, that's what a bank is. It makes loans and it intermediates. It keeps your money. Um, but otherwise, it's not that innovative. What he, you know, when he was saying Bitcoin is just for losers and anybody who does that is just a money launderer, you know, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, while they have said that they will start regulating things if they believe they're securities because those security laws already exist, they did say that they're now in, in um, cooperation with Accenture and with IBM they're trying to figure out how they can use blockchain and distributed ledger technology to make their own currency, a digital currency from the get-go, but also to tokenize it as well. Mm. And what the tokenization does is – so central banks per se like create money supply right, and control money supply and have economic impact. And what they're really trying to figure out is how can they eliminate some layers – of that, because they're also involved in the banking system from a settlement perspective, right? So if you want to move money from UO from the United States, right, from Citibank to J.P. Morgan, you have to use the Fed wire, right? So the Fed gets involved, the central banks get involved in all this stuff, and the idea is if it's just Bitcoin, it can sit on a blockchain, or even if it's not Bitcoin, if it's just tokenized and it can go on the blockchain, it's much smoother and much faster and much more well understood and much more transparent if that happens. And you know, I don't know what Singapore is going to end up doing. But what I do know is that they're going to take a rational look at this mm. and they're going to try to understand what the benefit is to Singapore as a country, what benefits MAS as an entity and as a regulatory entity, and then how they can help their own banking system, financial system, and their own currency benefit from what's going on. And yet that, like, that is a fundamental change in the global financial system as well because you've got a country of – you know, 5.5 million, maybe 6 million people. Sure, it's a big banking center, but they're going to lead the world in its ability to adopt crypto. Look, you and I talked about this in the context of um, self-driving vehicles, right? Mm. When we first started podcasting at the beginning of this year, one of the things we talked about was um, autonomous vehicles. And, and you and I both said, we think the first place to test this is going to be in Singapore for a whole bunch of different reasons. And yet a few months later, there it was. Yeah, exactly. That, that testing was announced. And I think they're just so forward-looking and they're so thoughtful and they're so rational about what they do. And I think the same thing is going to happen in crypto. And that's one of the, another one of the reasons why mm. you know, Asia as a, as a region is matters quite a bit. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the autonomous vehicle example as, you know, as a case study as to why Asia will lead – Really, when you break it down and look in, under the hood, if I may, is that, you know, there are a number of things going on, isn't there? You, you talked about vested interests and you've given a great example with the uh, AT&T merger as, you know, the politics that go on behind is probably more important than the actual benefit to the market in general. So when you think about autonomous vehicles, you know, there may be less of those vested interests. There's certainly less automotive manufacturers outside of Japan in Asia than there are in any other country in the world, especially in Europe and the US, right? So there's right. that going on as, as well as some basic stuff like in the US, which was news to me when we talked about this in our podcast is that, you know, you have how many states and each state has their own 
control over the driving, you know, procedures and regulations and so on. So, you know, that all has to be synchronized. Whereas if you have just one city state, it's just one authority when it comes to driving regulations, right? And so in that sense, physically, it's a lot easier to roll this stuff out across those kind of countries. And it was always the sort of argument as to why in telecoms terms, some of the Asian countries were ahead of the curve when compared to the US because the US was geographically bigger and it had lots of vast space in the middle. So therefore it was harder to build out stuff. And that stuff was, you know, base towers of, you know, the mobile telecoms networks and so on. So in the context of Asia is very easy because, you know, when you have 5 million people shoved into a small island, like you have in Singapore right. or, you know, 15 in Tokyo and Shanghai and so on, you had so many more customers in a, in a very crammed space and it was a lot cheaper and more effective and faster to roll out stuff, right? So you have that going on. And I think these are the kind of factors which play for anybody in that space to say, okay, well, consider this. It's a lot easier to do this in Asia. Now, you bring that back to crypto, and you talk about this idea with Singapore. And I think this is really fascinating because a lot of the crypto startups that you get on your show, these tend to start out as small startups and obviously they grow, but you know, they tend to be one guy or two guys and they tend to be very location independent in the sense they don't have an inventory. They don't have an office. They don't have, you know, a client base in a specific area. So the idea of relocating to Asia is very tempting, isn't it? It's the sense that, you know, why they will follow where the regulatory environment is the most favorable because they don't have anything to lose by upping sticks from Berlin, London or New York and moving to Singapore, Hong Kong or Bangkok, right? So if there is going to right, be a exactly. change, it's going to be in the crypto space first. Right. And look, we were doing some research on this, particularly in crypto a few weeks ago, and we found, you know, a company like Simple Tokens started by an American, right? Instead of setting up their foundation in Switzerland, set up their foundation in Hong Kong. And it's not because it's not because, you know, Hong Kong isn't regulated and it's a free for all. As a matter of fact, the HKMA, so the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, as well as creating a regulatory infrastructure around this that again takes away the the you know the lack of the lack of the known. So it's there's no unknowns here. Building it there made sense. You know, another company that I'm familiar with, a company called Wirex, had 40% of their business in Asia, even though they hadn't done any marketing here. And they said, okay, we've got to start offices and start our business down there because of the million people that have downloaded their app and that use it, 400,000 of them were in Asia. It just it doesn't make any sense. And again, if it's all on mobile, we know that mobile penetration is higher in Asia as well, something we haven't yet talked about, but but we can. And it's mobile first as well, right? So people are not normally sitting at a PC or something when they're on the internet. They're just using their mobile phones first. And all of these little details add up to a much bigger and easier, getting back to the conversation you talked about earlier, where the ease of doing business, but also just the ease of running a business in this region and building a mobile business as well. You don't have to convince anybody to do it. They don't know any other way. So whether it's e-commerce or crypto or anything else, it's all mobile first. It's just a much better place to do it and just another reason why, you know, Asia is really, really important. I think people are starting to figure this out globally. So can I throw uh, an objection out there? Because this is something that people often talk about in the context of why Asia doesn't matter. And, you know, it's it's on every iPhone. I mean, you know, every single iPhone is made in China, but on the box it says designed in California. 
And, you know, going back to the, the top of the hour when we, we introduced the story about e-commerce and you, you spoke to the venture capitalists and they say that, that, well, we don't have any exposure, we don't have any visibility in Asia. And one of the reasons maybe is that this objection that people say, well, you know, Asia's very good at copying stuff, but, you know, where are the Steve Jobses? Where are the, the Google boys? Where are the, the, that qualitative, that, that substance that, you know, the US has in spades, especially when you go out to California, these leaders, these people who shape opinion, shape thoughts, because that's the lightning rod that rallies around, you know, all those startups and creates those communities. Just as, you know, if you go back to the Valley, it's Hewlett and Packard and so on. That's that kind of story. Where is that in Asia? Because looking as an outsider into Asia, people will say they just don't exist. They just, you know, they've built a manufacturing base. They're very good at copying ideas. They're very good at executing, but they just don't have the leadership. Is that fair? No. <laughs> not anymore. Not as of right now. And I'll tell you why. Okay. So you've heard of Sony. You've heard of Panasonic. Obviously, you live in Japan. You understand this. The whole world has heard of these companies. They've heard of Toyota. Everybody knows them. Okay. Um, excuse me. You've heard of Samsung. Some people have heard of LG. You've heard of HTC. All these companies. Huawei. Obviously people Huawei. Have heard of Don't Apple. forget Huawei. <laughs> I'm not done yet. But, but, Huawei actually is a company that was started about 30 years ago. You and I know way too much about this. And, you know, we've had our own experiences. We told people we were KOLs. We went to Huawei Connect in 2000, 2017 in Shanghai. Okay. But, but to be fair, since we came home from that event, we haven't really talked about it that much. And yet yesterday some news came out. So Huawei has just built its, has just released its Mate 10 Pro. Mm -hmm. And besides the fact that they've designed their own chip, okay. Um, they've put artificial intelligence and augmented reality into it. It's bezel-free, and it is an extremely innovative phone. Huawei is trying to make itself. So when pe people laughed at Huawei you know, five years ago and they said, we want to be one of the top three mobile phone sellers in the world, people were like, that's ridiculous. And yet there they are sitting at number three. Um, and there's no reason why they can't be number one if they can just continue to dominate not just in China but in the rest of Asia. Um, they may have an operating system, pro system problem with Android, but that's another topic for another day. The point is that they've essentially come out of nowhere. I mean, you and I know this because we talk about it all the time. There's no such thing as an overnight success. It just seems like one. But Huawei could actually be a brand that the rest of the world embraces. And remember, you talk about Apple. So Apple runs an integrated business as well, right? So from a phone perspective – Huawei has always, not always, but for the past 25 years, they've built some of the most sophisticated um, signal switching equipment in the world. And what that means is that their back end, not just hardware but software, runs most of, if not all of, the telco systems in Asia. So think about the ability for Huawei to innovate on top of that and then build a phone and a chip that communicates perfectly with their cell towers that they build, the back-end systems that they install in, in phone companies, and now they have a phone that won't drop calls, that does the best AI, that takes the best pictures, and then has augmented reality on it. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen the Mate 10 Pro, and I don't, I don't really know any more about it than the rest of the world. But I'm just saying, like, we're reaching an inflection point where whether it's China or the rest of Asia is no longer going to be, either from a hardware or a software perspective, 
origin they're copycats. And I think considering the fact that the manufacturing expertise is all in Asia, what's that going to mean for a company? Let's just mm. say Apple, and I love Apple. It's got $300 billion in the bank. It's an amazing company. All of my, my computer's an Apple computer. My phone's an Apple phone. I haven't used any other phone since um, Apple came out with the iPhone back in 2007 or 2008 in Japan. So I know what I'm talking about. But what happens when Apple goes to Samsung and says – I want you to manufacture the best OLED screens to our specs. And they said, we're too busy manufacturing for ourselves. And then Huawei you know, uses the manu- their own manufacturing capacity. And because they innovate around it, they can't, you know, Foxconn can't keep up with their innovation or their ability to produce. Like what happens to Apple's products that are then developed in California? Now, I'm not ever, and I have never said this, being a doomsday sayer or doomsayer on Apple because it's an amazing company mm. run by Tim Cook. And, you know, it's probably been the most incredible five or six year run of any CEO in the history of CEOs, both from a profit perspective and from an innovation perspective. But at some point, a lot of that innovation is going to happen in a domestic market in Asia. And I think we're almost at that point, actually. And that's going to mean Asia is going to continue to matter even more to the extent where, you know, they'll look at other markets and just think they're in decline and maybe they won't spend as much attention there. You got to have a strategy for dealing with all of your stuff in Asia. Mm. Uh, especially when you increasingly see people like Jack Ma, Alibaba in the news. Now, until this point, he's been just that Chinese guy, right? That rich Chinese billionaire who does Alibaba, which most people weren't familiar with, but things have changed, haven't they? And you know, these, outward-looking, forward-facing leaders have the ability to get on stage and set the agenda, right? And I think, you know, he's just one of a new generation of Asian leaders who are coming through, which will redefine people's concept of what Asia means and why it matters. Because until that point, you rightfully mentioned, it's like, you know, people's concepts of what these companies can do has been they're just knockoffs. They're cheap knockoffs, right? But now we have people who sit at the head of these companies and may, maybe that next generation of leaders coming through within those companies can take it to the next level. I.e., you know, you got it to this level, but now what we need is somebody who has a vision rather than somebody who's just very good at the operational stuff, right? Yeah. I, th- I think that's very interesting. I mean, I mentioned Jack Ma, but there's a whole host of them, right? And they're not alien to Asia. I mean, you've mentioned, for example, like Sony and you've got people like Morita and like Ibuka and you have the... Uh, you know, the, the people who pioneered in that space of so the Japanese were able to produce them. I think they can produce them anywhere in Asia, right? Yeah, absolutely. And look, who's to say that there's going to be another in, in, investor in the United States like Warren Buffett, right? You talk about investors and investing in things, right? Who's to say that next investor is not going to be Jack Ma or somebody coming out of China or Taiwan or Indonesia or Malaysia or Singapore? Like, there's no reason why not, right? Um, and, you know, Berkshire Hathaway as an entity has been a great investment vehicle for people that have that have invested in it, but not a lot in tech, right? I mean, sure, he did buy some Apple and he did buy some Goldman Sachs during the financial crisis, but I mean, there was no eBay, there was no, you know, Facebook, there was none of that shenanigans because he didn't understand it. He said that himself. That's not a drag on him. It's just he said, I only invest in businesses I understand. But this new generation of people coming up in Asia that all they've known is investments in technology and technology all around them, maybe that next investor is going to come out of there. And who's to say it's not Tencent, somebody from there, mm. that it's not, you know, 
Alvin Wong Graylin, who runs a hundred million dollar or more investment fund in the VR and AR space, right? I mean, there are all these people that are potential candidates to to run that, and when they're looking at their home markets, that you know they're just going to focus on Asia, mm. because because again, even for sorry to, sorry to keep going, but even for a company like Huawei to get back to them, they run into regulatory problems in the United States, right? Because they can always throw up this straw man that like oh the Chinese government runs it, so if they install phone switches they're going to get all this information all this other noise but the reality is they don't care because their home markets whether it's southeast asia or asia are so big that while the u.s is fighting about whether they can install their equipment there they're building newer and innovative and faster and better equipment and then connecting their own phones to it here so in the end that's where asia really comes into play yeah but let's not get away with ourselves it's not all fantastic and exciting in Asia. No, no, no. There's, um, there's a big surprise as well. You want to share? I know you like to end the, the, every <laughs> podcast every week with a, a big surprise. Put us back in our place. What have you got for us today? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I was just reading something over the last couple of days, right? So a Japanese pawn shop company called Cash was acquired for 7 billion yen. I like to say billion. Um, it's about 65 million bucks. And I think it was just built like a year ago. I can't remember exactly what it is. But again, this is one of those things where it almost looks like an aqua hire to me. And the, the team that built it has actually built a couple of other startups and sold them. But this whole concept of DMM, right, which is Digital Media Mart or something, I can't remember. It's been around since 2002, going out and spending 7 billion yen or um, – <laughs> or $65 million on a company that like was literally just started. Like it can't be that good. And yeah. the only reason why I like to bring this up is, you know, that's a big surprise is because it doesn't fall into my normal category of food delivery <laughs> or that kind of silliness. But I'm just not sure that this type of company is going to be around. So the, what does this company do? Well, it allows you – it's neat, but again, I just don't Porn. see the use well, of it That's P-A-W-N, right? Just before you... Yeah, but what it does is, so the functionality that the app has is you take a picture of something yeah. and it estimates its value. Yeah. Sure. Right. So that's what you're sure. paying for. You, you don't like that because I can see, I can see if I was de-junking a house, that could be quite useful. Yeah, but who's held to what, right? So I think they actually pay you. They put a down payment on your thing and then if they can sell, like I didn't right. look at all the details, right? So fair enough. But maybe they, they put a value on it and then maybe they put a bid on it. Like that's an right, interesting yeah. business. But yeah, do, do you know what I mean? It just seems yeah. like a weird thing. But if you were selling something. 65 million bucks on. Yeah. Because I see the, the weakness in that model is if you're just taking a photo of something. Like, I mean, if you do, and I know it's not just things, it's going to be more everyday things. But if you, let's say you take a photo of a, a, a painting as an example. Like that painting could look exactly like another painting, but the fact that it's got a little tiny signature in the bottom right hand side of the painting makes it worth a hundred times more than the next one, right? And you could apply that to anything. It could be, you know, like your family silver, it could be, you know, like some collector's items like Star Wars figures, whatever it may be, right? A small, very subtle difference in that picture can make a huge difference in the valuation. So just taking a photo of it, to me, it sounds like, well, somebody then has to go in and manually value that anyway. And that sort of thing, in most cases, is going to happen, isn't it? So that, to me, sounds like it's no different from just an eBay. And, you know, Japan has plenty of auction websites, Yahoo, eBay, etc. right? So, But also yeah. the verification, right? So let's say I take a picture of something, and if it was brand new, it would be worth, I don't know, 10,000 yen, right? 
And remember, you put a down payment on it. Maybe it goes into escrow. And let's say when you finally receive the physical good, it's not what I said it was or it's not as good yeah. as I said it was only worth 3,000 yen. Well, just mendoksai, right? What a pain in the butt to be able to have to deal with this. And like returns are one of the biggest problems in e-commerce businesses anyway. Here's my feeling on this. If you have $65 million to light on fire, and again, that's mm. me talking, not you. But if you have $65 million to just like light on fire – why not invest in like 60 blockchain companies? Yeah. Like something that's really going to change the world. Why invest in that? Unless there's some insanely great artificial intelligence or augmented reality or mm. something built into it. And I don't know that, right? But just from the outside looking in, I don't get it. And to me, in a market like Japan, so sorry for this before I say it, but it always seems to me like the, these acquisitions are a little bit of inside baseball, right? Like is it 7 mm. billion yen in cash? Is it 7 billion yen in like a small cap company stock? Like I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Especially, but it seems like the music yeah. is put out there, sorry, to like make somebody look good as opposed to make somebody rich. Exactly. We see a lot of that in Japan. And from the financial sector, you know how it works as well. When two banks merge, you know two banks aren't merging. You know one of them's gone bust. So Yeah, exactly. And the, and the regulators telling them, okay, you better buy Apple Bank over there. Exactly. So there you go. No big surprise. But – there you go. I mean, it shows that there's a lot of money in the region as well, and never a bad thing. Hey, Michael, great talking to you this week. We'll continue our theme of why Asia matters. If you want to go and find out more about why Asia does matter, go and check out Asia Tech Podcast. That's www.asiatechpodcast.com. We'll be sharing the latest results from our vote and our awards and rankings of what's the best in Asia next week, as well as updates on our movements. We are going to be in... Singapore. So we're heading to Singapore. Yep. In, well, just over a week. So do you want to give a quick heads up on that or should we save it to next week? No, let's talk about it a little bit now and then we'll talk about it more next week as well. So on November 29th, for me until December 2nd, we'll be there. We're taking meetings. We're looking at stuff. Um, you know, we've already got a pretty full schedule, but again, please ping us if you want to meet us. There's a whole bunch of things to talk about, a whole bunch of things going on in our business that we don't discuss normally. But we're going down to take care of some stuff in Singapore and yeah. also as part of our tour throughout Asia to find out what the best startup city is. We're going to meet people for that too. So we're going to try to go to co-working spaces. We're going to try to meet some investors. We are meeting some investors. And we're going to have some discussions as well on some other topics. Yeah, and we'll broadcast a show from Singapore. And it's one thing I love about it is, I mean, it comes back to the airport, doesn't it? Is that when you say you're going to Singapore, you know, our schedule fills up well. That filled up like in half a day, didn't it? We had everything booked out with people who wanted to do meetings with us. And, it, you know, a lot of it comes down to the fact that, you know, if you want to meet somebody in Singapore, it's not like you're meeting somebody, I don't know, like in, in Tokyo, which could be like a two hour journey from one side to the other, right? In Singapore, it's all in the same place. So everybody can meet you and it can all be done within like 10, 15 minutes. So our schedule, our diary filled up in a matter of hours. And that was fantastic. Yeah. It is. I mean, whether it's investors or startups or incubators or whatever, there's going to be some great meetings down there. We'll meet some crypto people as well. I've got a couple of those meetings set up, so all good. Excellent. Asia Tech Podcast. Go and check us out. Go and sign up to our newsletter if you want to get regular updates on what's happening in the Asian tech ecosystem. And if you're an iTunes fan, go and check us out on iTunes. Subscribe to us there and leave us a rating. Let us know what you think. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.